It is another week of Canucks talk here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Drantz. Drantz are just finishing up some of his uh, other duties here after the game day save for the Canucks. You'll be on momentarily. Canucks talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team. Avenue Machinery.ca, DouglasLakeEquipment.com. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative is at Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. At Rogers Arena, but as always, coming to you live from the Kintec studio. Drance is here. I mean, what do we say? <laughs> what do, what, what do, where do we even go? Where do we even go from here? I just did. I just did the name droppiest thing I've ever done in my entire life, and I'm just gonna like tell on myself because I'm so embarrassed about it. But also, I just want to name drop again. <laughs> Where like I got a call from like a recognizable name, and yes. I held it to you, and I was like, "Drag the puck." I just need to tell him I'll call him back later. It was the worst thing I've ever done. That's all right. All right. Anyway, we are here at Rogers Arena, where the Canucks had a very optional morning skate. Yes. And then, honestly, sounded pretty down. Like. You don't say. The availability was so dour today. I was stunned in the locker room. I, I mean, I had a nice chat with Niels Oman. That was mostly what I did. I was like, uh, you know, I, I'm still getting to know some of these people. That was my second time in Rogers Arena's locker room since 2019. <laughs> so, or since 2020, 20, anyway. Early 2020, yeah. So, you know, I'm still tr- just trying to get to know guys. So I had a nice chat with Niels Oman, who... Obviously, is uh, it's hard for a young guy to be like, you're the second best guy on the team. That's like tough. That's a tough spot to be in when everyone else is down bad. Yeah. Well, so, it's a compliment to Neil Zaman, but it's also a, a swipe at the rest of the team, right? Well, for 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 that to be out there. I also wonder, you know, if you re- read closely the the piece that Rick and I reported on Neil Zaman making the team like three four weeks ago, we noted that there were senior voices in the organization that seemed to think he would be better suited to developing in the American League. Mm-hmm. So when a coach makes such a point of being like, Neil Zaman's our second best player, I always sort of read into that, like they're probably fighting a multi-front battle here. <laughs> sort of demanding like, look, and this player is in fact good. I was right to keep them up here. Uh, that's sort of, there There was some political subtext there, mm-hmm. I think too, which sort of speaks to everything that's going on around this team, where it feels like nobody's on the same page. Uh, you know, we have to talk about Saturday. I mean, this is our first time back on yeah, the era since Saturday. Well, I mean, and and that was a stunning scene. It, I, 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 um, I, I, look, we talked about it on Friday. I know I'm just having trouble <laughs> wrapping my head around it. Still, we talked about it on Friday. We all knew, we all knew there was the possibility that things could go sour, that things could turn into a negative spectacle at the home opener. I was talking about it. Later that day with some friends off air, and you know, even what I was saying was, look, I don't, I don't think it's going to be that bad. I don't think there's going to be a jersey on the ice. It was that bad, and then some. It was a nightmare scenario. I struggle to think how it could have gone worse the, for the home opener for this team. The game script dictated it because Buffalo just absolutely put the boot in, and this group absolutely stopped showing any sign of effort in the third period. Bruce Boudreaux wouldn't admit that they quit after the game, but mm-hmm. he was, like, trying to convince himself, and yes. it was wildly fascinating to watch because he was like, I never want to say that they quit. Like, I can't believe that anyone I would can't do accept that. that. Yeah. But when and – then, and then he's like, but when you're down a goal and you need a goal and you're trying to get two guys to forecheck and only one guy's forechecking, like, oh, my God. And you could just see him doing the math. You could see the wheels turning 
inside the head of, of a guy who prides himself on, you know, a positive mindset, positive visualization, right? Um, and you could feel it again today. Like, you could feel it again today as he was discussing, you know, being proud and wanting to win tonight. I mean, it's just stunning. And for all that this is, all of these scenes, for all of the noise, like the way that it feels like everyone's not on the same page is what struck me the most, right? Rutherford's stunning admission uh, on After Hours that he didn't know that Boudreaux mm-hmm. had a second year of his deal when he when he took the job. I mean, that's unbelievable. That's unbelievable and really changes the conversation we were trying to have last year, which no one wanted to discuss, about exactly how everything went down. The timeline, Stan Smeal, GM for three days, right? The winless Stan Smeal era. Um, and, and the team just wouldn't lose, so no one wanted to have the conversation. Everyone was happy to just say, Boudreaux has fixed it. Boudreaux came in and he fixed it. And so we didn't want to, no one wanted to engage with the notion that in moving past last year, some corners were cut, the timeline is falling apart rapidly now, and it's set up a situation that seems just as dysfunctional. In fact, no, no, you know what, not just as dysfunctional, literally identical to the one that the club was in 10 months ago through well, last November. Trance, you could argue it's more dysfunctional. You could argue it's more dysfunctional Would because you? they've doubled down on this. I mean, I don't think it's more dysfunctional. I just think there's no obvious rant offering. Yeah, but there's that's no the difference. Last year there was. Last and year. they declined to take it. And now they're in the same situation without the obvious offering. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and their contract like situation's worse, too. Their contract situation's worse. It feels like a more hopeless scenario now than it did last season. Because last season at this time, you could say, new management is going to come in. They're going to see this with clear eyes, and they're going to do the necessary changes to put this team in a new direction. That <laughs> didn't happen. And you know it's not going to happen now. No. No, you, you do know that. Yeah, I mean, you're right. This is rapidly becoming if it is not already the most depressing situation in the NHL right and you know there there's this sense I like I, I'm getting a lot of you can't overreact to six games but it's not we're overreacting and, and fans are overreacting in fact fans are just appropriately reacting to the overwhelming trend of a decade of basically of basic hopelessness and directionless from this franchise right it's the opposite side it's those moments of hope that have occasionally popped up for this organization whether it's the bubble run the playoffs in 2015 the 50 games under Budro, the Bruce there it is Canucks that this organization is so intent on fixating on as like who they are and ignoring reams of evidence that this team's not good enough consistently right and I think that's done like the, this team was built to at least be fun and make the playoffs, right? At least be fun, at least have a chance to make the playoffs. For me, that bar is way too low. And this group doesn't seem capable of even stepping over that bar. And and to sort of make this extra dangerous, from my view, right, is that <laughs> the team hasn't actually... I know it's hard to hear this. Uh, there have been moments where this team has really played terribly. The third period against Buffalo was ugly from simply like an effort perspective, right? That's what was unacceptable. But until that moment, whether it was in that game or or all season, they haven't played that badly. They've had brutal luck on special teams, 
Demko hasn't been a game stealer yet, but we know he will be. You know, Quinn Hughes has been overextended and hasn't looked like himself, and guess what? He's hurt week to week now. Like, mm-hmm. shocker, right? JT Miller has not played up to the level that we all know he's capable of playing, and now he's going to be moved to the wing. And, I, I, you know, he's probably going to still, at the end of the year, you're going to be like, I was frustrated with JT Miller all year, and then you're going to look at the back of his hockey card, and he's going to have 65 points and 30 goals. Like, you know, these guys are going to start win ga- winning games. This team is probably going to have weeks, months, much less, like, forget games, weeks and months where they're reeling off excellent results. You are going to see the February story. Hottest team in hockey, the Vancouver Canucks, make late push for a playoff spot. And in that moment, the question is, are you going to ignore the wider trend like this organization has been intent on doing, or are you going to know what this team is, right? Like, this team is not this bad. They are not the 32nd best team in the NHL. We'll get into, like, Connor Bedard talk around this team later in the show, maybe even this segment. Yeah. But, like, they are not going to get into that mix. This team is not this bad. There are good forwards. There is good goaltending. Their power play will be good. There is more talent than they've shown through six games. But it's not overreacting through six games to be like, they should blow this up, in my view. That's a rational reaction to a wide trend a decade long now of this organization twiddling their thumbs instead of setting a a plan that could realistically build a contending team on Canada's West Coast. Well, and just on the overreacting point, you also, at a certain point, you can take some of your cues from the team itself, right? Like, the team is obviously extraordinarily frustrated. The coach is extraordinarily frustrated. The president is extraordinarily frustrated. The players sound completely I don't even know what the word is, but just down, down on everything, right? Dejected. So it's not as if this is the media and the fans, you know, creating this bad situation out of thin air. The The team is looking at it and saying, man, this is really bad. This is completely unacceptable. What is going on here? We need to find a way to fix it, right? It's And, and, and your point about this isn't just six games is very, very well taken as well, right? This is a continuation of what we saw at the beginning of last season. It's a continuation going on a long, long ways uh, farther back than that. Uh, there's so much to get into from from Saturday and from what the conversation has been since then as well. You know, I think the thing that really strikes me is <laughs> the Canucks are, they're the story in the NHL right now, right? Like, they are the top story in the NHL, not just here in Vancouver, but across the country, even in North America, to a certain extent, their struggles are the problem after what we or, or are the story after what we saw on Saturday night. And I wanted to play this from uh, from Elliot Friedman on the Thirty Two Thoughts podcast that was released today. And uh, you know, we play a lot of Friedman audio here. There's a reason for that. He's plugged in. He's very influential. This really, really struck me, and it's Elliot Friedman talking about uh, how he would govern the rest of the season if he was running the Vancouver Canucks. I want to take it a little bit further. We talked about Washington. Mm-hmm. If there's a year for Vancouver to tank, oh yeah, it's this one because it's Connor Bedard, right? Yep. I have to say, if I ran the Vancouver Canucks right now, I would be sitting there and saying, "Do we just?" mail this one in and go for Bedard. Now, here's the thing. That is rife with a lot of things. First of all, Bedard's a Vancouver guy. He loves the Canucks. 
Apparently, he likes their Instagram posts all the time. That's what someone said to me today. It's a sensible play. Here's the thing, Jeff. In the analytic world, you know, going back to Billy Bean and Moneyball, he talks about the playoffs as luck, right? Mm-hmm. Well, nothing is more lucky than the draft lottery. Nothing. You talked about Pittsburgh rebuilding and winning. Yes, but they won the ultimate draft lottery. Toronto that year, they got Matthews. They won the ultimate lottery. Edmonton won McDavid. They won the ultimate lottery, although they didn't have as much lottery luck before. I think if you're Vancouver, you take the chance now because odds are you're not going to make the playoffs, but you could still have the worst record in the league and not get the guy. Mm-hmm. Now, what I think you can do if you're Vancouver, though, is say, we're going to go for the best pick we can this year and hopefully add a young, talented player to our group. Because to me, the number one thing right now is why this group on paper, which looks really talented and has more young talent than several other teams, can't get going. That's the question I'm asking. Mm-hmm. What's wrong here? And that maybe is- it is cliques. I don't know. But they're just not as good as the sum of their parts. Excuse me, I stepped over the end of Elliot Friedman's clip. That is Elliot Friedman on 32 <laughs> Thoughts that released today uh, with Jeff Merrick. You can check it out wherever you get your podcasts. And there's a lot to unpack there, including at the end, you know, why are they not, why are they less than the sum of their parts? But it just really struck me to have, you know, look, we get texts all the time, all the time. Blow it up, blow it up, tank for Bedard, tank for whoever in, in previous seasons. That's a very, very common refrain from fans. I get it. It's very, very rare, very rare to hear somebody like Elliot Friedman use his platform to say, if I was the Vancouver Canucks, I would throw in the towel, wave the white flag on the rest of this season, and try to get Connor Bedard. It's, and it's even less rare, Drans, after six games and one game at home. Well, and even more rare, I should say. You know I implied, I know I implied at some points during the summer that they should do this, but you'll vouch for me because off air I was just like, it's wild that this team wouldn't be doing this right now. Wild to me that you would be in on this group, doubling down on this group with a Lynn Valley kid whose favorite player is Tyler Mott, right? Who who told me this summer on the record that he cried for a week after the 2011 Stanley Cup win that you wouldn't at least be dipping your toe in the water to see. And look, you may not get him. Elliot's right, right? The Edmonton Oilers were definitely super lucky when they won the McDavid lottery because they only had the seventh best odds. Mm -hmm. The Maple Leafs, though, had the best odds. They loaded the dice. The Pittsburgh Penguins, when they got Crosby, they loaded the dice. Like, at at the end of the day, when it comes to probability, all you can do is make sure you have the best chance you can, Mm -hmm. and then it's it's up to, you know, the bounces of the lottery balls. The lottery balls never bounce this franchise way, franchise's way. But your reward this year, if you're one of the bottom three teams, is still really good. Yes. It's still, Brand- that- it's still Brandon Yeager or Langley's Zach Benson. Or Adam or- Fantilli. No, you're going to have to win a lottery to get Adam Fantilli. Well, sure, but like if you're if you're the second worst team, you have a really good shot of ending up in the top sure. three. Yeah. Like overall, your overall probabilities well, are really good. It's two. You need to win. Sure. So the two guys who you're going to need to win a lottery to get are Fantilli and Bedard. So you think Mitchkov is, is going to drop? 100%. Mitchkov's yeah. 100% going to drop because it's going to take him forever to get yeah, over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I would say, though, if you're a team that is probably looking at multiple years, like one thing about the Canucks is if you got Mitchkov, considering you've got 
you know, this incoming group of young Russian players who are pretty pretty interesting, right? Like Podkolzin and Kuzmenko have been standouts amidst the darkness of this early Canucks season. The fact that Michkov's a couple years away from coming over might be a feature rather than a bug. You know, it's not going to – you can't just tank for one year, get Bedard, and then be fine, right? Like, the, here's, the, here's the sad part about how poorly – how down bad this team is. Bedard will be uh, 23 – no, 22. 20, 22, 23 by the time Oliver Ekman Larson's contract expires. He's going to be 25 by the time JT Miller's contract expires. Like, you're not even positioned to be efficient in capitalizing off of Bedard's entry level deal. Nay, his entire prime. <laughs> That's how down bad this club is in terms of the mistakes of the last two summers. So, the fact that you get a guy who's, a, a, you know, a, a hyper elite shooter, one of the best shooters ever, who's, who's going to need two years to come over. That might help you. That might be a good thing for this team. So, again, Mitchkov's probably going to drop because of the contract status and also because Brandon Jaeger's incredible. Mm. Leo Carlson's a six yeah. foot three Swedish center setting records in the SHL right now. Um, Zach Benson of the Winnipeg Ice from Langley, unfortunately an Oilers fan, so he doesn't have quite the same Bedard <laughs> cachet, right? Uh, but, but Benson's a local kid too. Uh, you know, spitting image of Braden Point. Like, very much so has the chance to be that level of two-way, um, you know, speedy attacking threat in the NHL. Um, he's an excellent penalty killer at the age of 17 in the dub, and he was he was that at 16 too. So, yeah, I mean, there's so many good options. It's just, it's not enough to just be like, okay, well, it's going to be one year. One year of rebuilding, no. and then you're going to be fine. You're not going to be able to rebuild this blue line in one year. You're not going to be able to reset the defense sufficiently in one year. And I'm still worried. Like I'm still worried that this organization instead is going to, you know, they, they could easily win tonight. I know their odds aren't good. <laughs> no, not without Quinn Hughes, not without Brock Besser against a Carolina hurricanes team that plays North South hockey better than anybody in the league. Um, I, I, I actually, I need to now having said that, I need to know what they are on the money line. It was so that Carolina was They're minus only plus one thirty. Yeah, now I, w- I will. I, I do wonder if, with confirmation that Quinn Hughes is out, if that changes. Plus one thirty is not significant, right? Like that. Yeah, it's not. That's not a huge. They're not a huge dog against the Carolina Hurricanes. They're still at home. They still employ Thatcher Demko, right? Like they're, they're still a tough matchup for a Hurricanes team that doesn't play East West at all. And yet, so yeah, I mean, again, this team is going to go on runs. This team is too good to get into the Bedard sweepstakes without significantly harming themselves. Like, they have to work to get into that conversation. We're only six games in. This team's still going to be, in my view anyway, 85-plus points this year. We are going to see months in which this team looks great over the balance of the season. I will be stunned if this is a true death march from now through the end of the year. Like, I, I, it would blow me away. There is too much talent here. As to, as to the sum of the parts question, we, we've been unpacking that. We'll unpack it even more in the next mm-hmm. segment. But, you know, for, for all of that, and for all that I'm convinced that talent, especially on the back end, is this team's biggest issue, there's too much talent here for them to meaningfully get into the Bedard sweepstakes without work. I'm worried instead that the team's going to get on enough of a run to stabilize and ignore the obvious truth that's been staring us in the face for five, six years, which is that without significant change in orientation – and in ambition, this franchise isn't going anywhere anyway. See, I think 
if the carrot of Connor Bedard is what you need to start that process, then that's then you should you should do it, right? And I'm not saying it's one year, right? And then okay, and then we're right back at it. We're gonna go trade our future picks and we're gonna try to be good again. That's but, exactly what they're gonna do though. But that shouldn't be what they do. And I'm just, I'm just saying maybe, just maybe that carrot is the, is what they need to finally do the actual meaningful change of direction. Because as much as we can say, well, you know, even we with Connor Bedard, they still have all these bad contracts. It's like, well, it's not going to get better if you just keep doing this. And I understand, you know, the reaction to the rebuild commentary often, and Jim Rutherford said this uh, on After Hours with Scott Oak as well, or alluded to it as, wow, well, I mean, you want to be bad for five years? They've been bad for longer than that. Like, this isn't working either. It's not as if they're on this quick turnaround path and they're competing in the playoffs year after year. So how is that different? Exactly what would be different about being bad for five years? First of all, I don't think you even have to be bad for five years if no, you do a no. rebuild. I think that's a misconception. The, the, the Buffalo the Buffalo example is perfect. Like The fact that that commentary was made after, a, after getting blown out by a Buffalo team that only 11 months ago was the dysfunctional franchise in the NHL they only they only traded Jack Eichel eleven months ago, Jamie. Right, and already they're this like exciting young up and coming team. It's amazing the type of progress you can make when you stop doing the really silly things that get teams into this type of mess where you have both no future and no present. Mm-hmm. Right, it's amazing how quickly hope can re- be restored by just disciplined, forward looking management moves over the course of a year or two. Uh, I, you know, People like to point out all the rebuilds that didn't work. They didn't work because the teams messed it up. Because well, the teams messed it up badly. And people point to Arizona. That doesn't work because Arizona doesn't spend at all. But also, it's not the, the same. Guess what? It's really hard to win. So you can look at any strategy you want and find successes, but it's probably going to be outweighed by the failures because most teams fail in the NHL. It's really, really hard to win. And if you want to say, well, you know, Team X tried to rebuild and it never went anywhere, well, you can point to way more teams than that that never tried to rebuild but tried to muddle through and that never went anywhere. But, but it's truly stunning that people bring up, like, the Islanders situation or the Oilers situation and it's like it's truly stunning if you go back and look at all the bad moves that compounded to make those teams and situations hopeless for as long as they were hopeless, right? The Leafs rebuilt in like two years. You know, they were they were they were bad. They were basically what the Canucks were. This team that was constantly banging its head against the wall trying to compete in the short term. Clarkson and Boland. Mm-hmm. Like the first year of the Shanna plan, Shanahan's first year as president, they they were bidding till the 11th hour to sign the Dave Boland contract. Uh, Dave Boland played like 50 games on that deal. Right? Like It was a disaster the moment he signed it. It's not like Shanahan was completely flawless, but within a year, they'd completely reoriented their priorities. They traded Kessel, right? They intentionally were bad one year. They got Matthews. They got lucky. But yeah, they also got unlucky and got Marner. They also got unlucky and got Nylander, right? Uh the sum of its parts, though, is that that team put the, put itself on an upward trajectory. They've made the playoffs eight years in a row. I know they haven't won, won a round, but you'd take that. You'd take getting to watch Austin Matthews prime for sure. So, yeah, I mean, look, at this point, you can't overreact to the six games. You can't. It's not possible. The only thing you can overreact to is what comes next in the event that Vancouver's luck changes, in the event that Demko starts stealing them games, in the event that the power play gets hot and, sh- and runs at an unsustainable percentage for a-, a few weeks. Just like just like last season's 50 games was a mirage, right? 
This team needs to be able to look at the wider trend of where they've where they've gone, how they've gotten here over the last decade of just endless, senseless, poor moves. That what that's what needs to be corrected. If this is an opportunity to do it, great. But it can't just be a one-year thing. It can't just be a well. This is the best way to restore confidence, and it can't be one of those. You got to put a plan in place, something holistic, and stick to it. It's Canucks talk here on Sportsnet 650. It is another game day uh, for the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, we'll talk to Randy Janda about a uh, special event happening at the game tonight, uh, and also just what on earth is happening with the Canucks so far this year. Uh, our guy Randy coming up next on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd-Thomas joins here live at Rogers Arena on a Canucks game day against the Carolina Hurricanes. We haven't even really had a chance to talk about that yet. Uh, we'll do so more throughout the course of the show. Of course, we've been uh, a little bit focused on everything that happened here on Saturday against the Buffalo Sabres for the Vancouver Canucks. Coming to you live uh, from the mobile Kintec studio on location here at Rogers Arena. Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintec.net. Uh, Randy Janda, Sportsnet 650 Canucks analyst, is going to join us momentarily. Get his thoughts on the season. Also, it is a very special night here at Rogers Arena. It is Diwali night, sixth annual, I believe, Diwali night for the Vancouver Canucks. So we'll talk to Randeep about that and his involvement a little bit as well. Uh, and now joining us, it is Randeep Janda from uh, right here at Sportsnet 650. Randeep, how's it going, man? Good, guys. How are you doing? Got enough to talk about? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I guess. I, I'm a little bit worried about what we're going to be talking about uh, a few months from now, but through six games, it's been uh, it's been quite the adventure. I, I mean, I know you haven't been doing the Saturday games, but uh, how does it feel not having called a win yet, buddy? Yeah, it's. Uh, I think the Janda Jinx was something that was coming up uh, on Twitter. So it, I, I can only say it's not me, guys. But it's uh, hopefully, hopefully that's coming soon. It has been a, a wild start to the season. You guys have talked about it, but just the ability of you know they've led five or six games and not being able to close the deal in one of those games. It, it's been baffling, and how they've been worked in the third period. It, it's it's strange, Jamie. It's strange. What stood out to you most? There's a lot to dive into, but. You know, it, it, to cap off the night on Saturday, Jim Rutherford was obviously on After Hours with Scott Oak. What stood out the most to you from uh, the Canucks president of hockey operations? Yeah, there was a lot to kind of look into. And, and the conversation around the rebuild in this city, I think, is the most interesting one to me. Because at the same time, acknowledging, hey, rebuilds take a long time. But that line of, we might be heading towards one anyways. Uh, that was the eye-opener to me to say, okay, wait a second. Where are you? Are you, you know... Clearly, your roster says you're going for it, but you know the end game here. Uh, what's the, what do we what what does the first six games of the season mean to that management group? They're clearly seeing the collection of players through six games that they have. Uh, you know, either you you bring your A game, you bring your best game, um, you buy into what the coach and the management group is trying to sell you, or you don't. So to me, it was the I don't know if that was a, a bit of an ultimatum. I don't know if that was a realization of maybe this team potentially is not as good as we thought they were, or this is a challenge to the team to be better. But I thought that line of we may be headed towards one anyways was a, a bit of an eye-opener for me as I watched that right after the broadcast on Saturday night. Randy, what are you noticing from just an effort-level perspective, uh, 
lot of talk about it after the third period on Saturday. Do you think that's been part of their issue? I think the effort definitely has something to do with that. You know, you look at two things. To me, it's effort. Um, you know, when when you can't get enough four checkers going to, to complete a, a third period where it doesn't look like they're maybe committed, that, that's a problem. And certain periods of the season, they've looked really, really good. You know, a second period here and there. But the consistency is a problem. The other thing, uh, Grant, I would say is that just the, the consistency between the ears. And effort is one thing, but not having that belief in certain segments of the game. Key moments. And I go back to that Vinny Hennestrosa non-goal, where the goal was disallowed for obvious reasons. It wasn't a goal. But 20 seconds later, they allow another one to Victor Olofsson. You have a moment to say, hey, we've got another lease on life when it comes to this game. But there's no confidence there. Rather than building off that moment to say, we're still in it. It's a 2-1 game. It goes back the other way. And credit to Buffalo for playing a great game. That Buffalo Sabres team is not the team that we remember over the last five to six years. But this is also a moment where the Vancouver Canucks have to look inwards and say, why did we treat that moment the way we did in that? Why did we not have any confidence? Why did we have the, the mental toughness, something that Bruce Boudreaux himself you know, brought up earlier, uh, later last week? Uh, those are two things. I think effort, for sure, there's moments where you're saying, okay, are you reading the play correctly is one thing, but have you done the utmost on that shift in terms of forechecking hard enough? Uh, those are questions at certain points of the season you can definitely ask of this team. It looks like we're going to see JT Miller potentially on the wing, at least based on the what the lines were yesterday uh, at more of a full practice, Randy. Is that the right decision right now? I mean, I know there was so much talk from the team about, hey, deep down the middle, three really good centers, three first-line centers. But at this point, is that kind of what they have to do with JT Miller? I think they have to do that right now. The way that JT's being outplayed, I got some stats on that as well. I helped, uh, asked our friends at Sport Logic, and, you know, you look at cycle chances this year. He's been, his, when he's on the ice, he's, He's been out chance 15 to 6. Scoring chances 37 to 21. Slot shots 22 to 11. Uh, shots 48 to 35. And we know about goals. That, that's over 80 minutes of play this year. And I get it when, you know, a player is playing down the middle, more engaged in the game, there's more puck on their stick, there's more responsibility. But with JT Miller right now, I think the ability, you know, those reads defensively is something that he's struggling with. And, and changing up that, that look, he's still going to take face off. I'm sure there's going to be opportunities where, you know, if he does move on to that wing role, that he's still going to have a, a role down the middle, whether it's face offs or otherwise. But, guys, the confidence in his game right now is not there, and the stats back it up through 80 minutes of play, even strength. He has been dominated. And I, I look at that and I say, the Canucks do have to change something because once you start to see key moments in that game, puck management is something, another thing that we look at with JT. And, and so I think that need is coming. They need to just give it a different look. Now, is this going to be the answer? Is Miller, Horvat, McKay of the answer? I, I don't know. Um, on that line, you know, Bo's taking those faceoffs. But if you see some changes coming later on, maybe he's playing with Pedersen. Maybe there's more of a, a role down the middle than faceoffs. But I think JT Miller needs that move to the wing because, as I've just mentioned, looking at those stats, this is a guy that his confidence – from a, a game perspective and his decision-making on the ice is, is not that, you know, something that's putting the Canucks in a, in a chance to thrive right now. Randeep, what can you tell us about your favorite drink and where fans can try it this evening <laughs> at Rogers Arena? <laughs> well, okay. So, you know, if you, um, the drink itself, unfortunately we won't have the drink tonight. So you're going to have to do that at home because we won't have that. We won't have that ready. But if you want some merch of good soda, uh, that's going to be on uh, section 102, 
uh, the concourse level. So come by. I might be there for certain segments of the night as well, and what I'm not working <laughs> with that. Say hello, pick up some merch. Uh, section 102, good uh, sort that we're going to have hoodies, tees, and just have fun tonight. It's such an awesome night. Uh, I've had a, a pleasure of working and working with the Canucks and setting up this night over the last six years. So the Valley night, uh, we'll see what happens on the ice. There could be fireworks on the ice. And uh, the Festival of Light is the body as well. So there's going to be fireworks on the concourse for sure, I'm sure. But for those interested in the concept, just explain for our listeners how they can try it at home. Okay, so here's my <laughs> the way that I put it. And then there's some controversy of what goes in first. You go 50% with the milk. Milk first in my oh, – sorry, I, I, I messed up. Cream soda first, Okay. 50%. Then you go milk. And what type and of milk? It. 1%, 2%? You skim. can do anything. I think, ah. I think generally like 2% is kind of the tried and true, but you can do oat milk if you're not, uh, you know, I know if yep. some of our friends are lactose intolerant out there. If you want if to, you to be try, very Vancouver about it, you can go yeah, oat milk. <laughs> you can go oat milk. So, you know, I know the coffee shops on Main Street might, might, be, uh, <laughs> might be suited for that as well. But there you go. And that's a simple recipe. And then you just enjoy it. Well, you're talking to a couple Main Street guys here, uh, Randy. Yeah, we're, so we're, thank you we're, for we're, that. We're wearing Blundstones and having dude <laughs> yes. uh, soda with oat milk. But I got to say, I've known you for a while now, Randy. You've never prepared me uh, a dude soda. What's the deal, man? Come on. Well, I've never tried there's it. Only, there's only a few people in the building that I actually, I think uh, Richo's tried it. I think Sat tried it. Alex Ald back in the day tried it. I haven't brought it out recently, so maybe what we'll do is uh, one of these days I'll, I'll yeah. swing by and uh, <laughs> you guys can either give me the thumbs up or um, put it down the drain. Uh, but It's a taste you know, test. Before we let you go, Randy, you know, it is Diwali night. And as you said, you've been involved with the Canucks on this for, for years now. And look, I mean, we've all, we're all getting to have our say about how the organization's performing on the ice. But I, I do think that nights like this, uh, you know, the Lunar New Year night, things like that are something that they have done very, very well in recent years to connect to the different parts of the community in Vancouver. What does a night like Diwali night tonight mean uh, for you? Well, you know, I think when this started, and it's something that's so unique that the Canucks really, in a lot of ways, started this in the NHL. We're seeing a lot of initiatives now that are coming from the league, but the Canucks have been on the forefront of this. And it, more than anything, it's just a great way to welcome the community. And it could be any community. It could be, you know, as you mentioned, Lunar New Year with the Chinese community, uh, you know, Punjabi, South Asian community when it comes to Diwali, other, other events as well. But it's just a a way to welcome a new fans, but also acknowledge those fans that have been involved with the game for a very long time. You know, the South Asian community uh, as fans and as players have a deep connection to the sport. So it's just a great way to welcome people that maybe in the past have never necessarily felt that the rink or maybe hockey was for them. This is another way to welcome them and say, Hey, there's multiple assets or sorry, multiple facets of, of, you know, hockey fandom. It doesn't always have to be, you don't have to worry about, you know, think about the left wing lock and, and you know, the sports <laughs> check and, and strategy. It can be, are you there to enjoy yourself? Are you there to take in the game and the fast paced game, but also at the same time, everything a fan experience has to offer. So to me, it's been, you know, special to be a part of this because it brings people from all backgrounds together and it gives them different entry points to the game. And that's the most important thing when we talk about bringing people into the game. It's, hey, everybody's got a different connection and, and sometimes you're, the way you start, the way you fall in love with the game is completely different from somebody else. And that's what tonight and nights like tonight are about. Randy, it's an awesome night. Uh, it, it's You've done a great job with it along with the Canucks. And I know you're going to have a blast tonight. And thanks for spending some time with us. Thanks, boys. Have a good one. That is Randy Janda, who's, of course, uh, Sportsnet 650's 
Canucks analyst on the broadcast with Batch nowadays and uh, also will be a big part of the Diwali night uh, festivities at uh, at Rogers Arena and yeah, look, I mean, I know we're all kind of we're all kind of wondering what's the crowd reaction going to be depending on how things go on the ice, but if you are coming down to the game uh tonight, uh we uh there's going to be a lot of fun things happening for Diwali before the game, during the game, so at least that part of things should be upbeat and festive and very very enjoyable and actually uh, at some point in the show here, Drance, we're going to give away a couple of tickets to tonight's game. So stay tuned for that. We got a pair of tickets to the game against the Hurricanes to give away on Diwali night. Um, we should talk probably about JT Miller here a little bit. Well, we got to talk about the atmosphere in yeah. general, right? Because Saturday night turned really toxic in terms of the fan reaction. At one point, there was a fan sitting in section. 122 Mm -hmm. right behind the Canucks net and he was wearing one of those retro black skate jerseys not like the 90s era Mm -hmm. like before that when it still had the V okay so it was truly like a late 80s retro jersey and he was wearing a paper bag on his head and fans in his section were coming up and taking photos with him he was posing for photos it was wild yeah and not what you want and you can understand why that would be so tough to process from a player perspective, right? I mean, I've talked a little bit about how in Florida, when you're losing, you can hear a pin drop. Mm -hmm. Here, when you're losing, it's the exact same amount of noise. It just is hostile as opposed to it being supportive, adulating, right? It's 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 a tough dynamic, and Canucks players now have answered question after question over the last two days about their reaction to it. And you've, and you've heard sort of a variety of responses. I know Bo Horvat captured by Ian McIntyre, the feeling of hopelessness. Mm-hmm. Uh, Curtis Lazar from British Columbia had a sense of the history of the jersey and what it means. And JT Miller was asked about it today and had his own response, which I think has kicked up a fair bit of emotion among fans sort of hearing it. Do we have do we have audio queued up? Yeah, here we go. Here's uh, here's JT Miller from earlier today asked about uh, fans throwing jerseys on the ice. What the fan reaction in the last game? I didn't have one after the game. I still don't have one. If they want to throw their shit on the ice, it's up to them. Does it leave a mark, though? Does it bother you guys? That happens in a home I, 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 I don't know. It's more of the same here. I guess I got a job to do. I'm not worried about if people want to come to the game, pay all that money, and throw their jersey on the ice. Go ahead. I don't. I got a job to do. Um, I'm worried about beating the Hurricanes today and having a good start to the game and us really trying to come together as a team, not whether people want to toss their gear on the ice or not. That is JT Miller. So didn't have a reaction then, still doesn't have one. If they want to come to the ice and throw their blank or come to the game and throw their blank on the ice, that's up to them. Yeah. um, So, look, I understand JT Miller's reaction. I actually think it's like I like the focus on your work thing, you know, I like the idea that the rah-rah sentimentality isn't who anyone really is in this sport anyway. You know, you do your job, right? Like, you do your job. You don't need to be doing anything other than earning ice time and helping a team win and focusing on the Hurricanes if you're a player, in my view anyway. The other stuff is noise. I think that's what JT Miller is trying to get at, is that, you know, I'm focused on winning. I'm focused on this as a job. I'm focused on what it takes, right? I'm not focused on the external noise. But I think, considering how raw the nerves are in this market, fans are going to hear that, and they're going to hear the the cursing, which is just true to who he is, right? Mm-hmm. Like, he's just being true to who he is. And who he is is a guy who's focused on tonight, the game. The, 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 side, the stuff he can't control, that's extraneous. 
but I think fans are going to hear it and say he doesn't care about the jersey and doesn't care about my reaction to this club's performance, which, you know, includes, for most fans, multiple decades of endless disappointment, right? And that's sort of a different message, right? I think the reason that fans have reacted so negatively to it is it sounds like it sounds like, and I don't. I know this isn't what he meant, and I don't even think it's a fair interpretation of it. I just think that the fans will hear the uh, "I've got a job to do" is like "I've got a paycheck to cash," but that's not what he means. Yeah, well, and I again, it's because they're in this environment where there is so much frustration, right? That everything is going to be. You're not going to give players the benefit of the doubt right now, right? I understand that from a fan's perspective, right? So it's easy to read those comments as basically, I don't care what the fans think. I don't care that they threw the jersey on the ice. I tend to lean more to what you're saying, Drancer, right? Which is that, hey, look, I can't control that. It's not my job to control that. I'm going to go out. The only thing that's going to change things, in fact, is if I play better and we win and we win some games. That's the only thing that's going to change things. So that's what I'm going to focus on, right? I, I think that's a very fair interpretation but also, when you're in this environment, when you're in this hothouse, that's you're not always going to get the benefit of the doubt from fans, right? So I also understand why there's been negative reaction uh, to that commentary. It, it might not be the healthiest response to be on this team the way that fans are uh, this early, particularly because what fans, I think, are responding to in this market, what we're responding to and talking about this team, mm-hmm. isn't necessarily just on this group of guys. Yeah. Right? Like, this is, this is decades of pent-up, certainly at least a decade of pent-up frustration and, and you know, decisions made by people well above JT Miller's pay grade uh, that have led this franchise here. That's what fans are reacting to with frustration. And, you know, I just think that there's a opportunity to... There's an opportunity that a player has in discussing it to express some understanding, mm-hmm. right? And And... In Miller's case, I don't think he did that. And that creates sort of its own spin-off story. And, you know, one that I think will be noticed around the league by, you know, more than just oh, more absolutely. than, just, more than just fans and media. That's already been the case, that yeah. people have been noticing that. And um, the other thing is that as much as, you know, obviously the cumulative frustration here goes back well before JT Miller arrived, it does feel like he's becoming a flashpoint. For right now. And, you know, obviously we all heard the boos in general. I wasn't at the game on Saturday. I was watching it at home. But there was at least one moment where it felt like the boos were directed at JT Miller specifically. I don't think so. I don't think that's and, right. And I'm saying I, I'm saying it felt like it, right? Yeah. And it, it, maybe it was just the weird sequence. But yeah. it felt like nothing. He picked up the puck. Boos. I think I'm open to being wrong about it, but it just it, it caught my attention. I think they were booing. I think the sequence you're talking about was on the power play, and I mm-hmm. think it was the power play struggles that sure. were booed. That's fair. I, I will say that the, the moment of booing that I felt would most discourage me, like the one that I was like, I would hate to be on the ice right now for, and obviously I'd hate to be on the ice against anyone of this caliber at any point. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, the, the particular moment was when the Thompson line was cycling endlessly in the Canucks end and you're getting booed by your own fans. Like, that must be just the worst. Like, I, I actually felt really bad for the five Canucks trying to defend in that moment. Because uh, what what can you do? What can you do? Yeah. It's, uh, it, I mean, there are a lot of moments uh, like that in that game on Saturday. Um, did you see this tweet from Walt Ruff? I just want to read this. 
Frederick Anderson was the first goalie off the ice at, at the Hurricanes morning skate today. In 22 career appearances against the Canucks, he has registered a 939 save percentage, his highest against any of the NHL's 32 franchises. Look, look, I've I've been wrong about some stuff, like them losing to Philadelphia and yes. then winning out on the road trip. <laughs> yes, I think in the big picture about this team, I've been I've been pretty good. But I do think, uh, like, we have reached uh, we have reached a crisis inflection point. Right where it's like things are so overwhelmingly stacked against the Canucks that they just got to win tonight, and in the weirdest way possible. Right, like they just have to. They just have to. Hockey never gives us the predictable outcome. Right, it feels like the, you know, it feels like the oceans themselves are rising against this team right now, and that's the moment that a hockey team always sneaks out a three-one win with like. You know, a game in which they get outshot thirty yes. to twelve. <laughs> that's that's what we're awaiting. That's what's awaiting us at Rogers Arena, and it's going to be fascinating to watch the reaction. I'm. Uh... I swear, I swear, I've never felt this confident about a Canucks win in a, in my time doing this show. I'm significantly less confident than you. I'm not saying there's no chance. There's always a chance. I get it. It's the NHL. It's hockey. The only time I've ever it's... felt more confident about a result was that time the Islanders. Remember the Islanders were so dialed in at yeah. a morning skate that I was like, oh my goodness, this team's going to win tonight. And then and then that happened. That was the only time that I felt more confident than I do today. This is this is when the Canucks, this is a get right game for the Canucks against an elite team against all odds. It it just it feels that way. Uh, Jared and Langley texted, and I was at the game Saturday and going tonight. Saturday I didn't notice boos directed at Miller as Drancer said. I was booing the last eight years. We will see. If tonight is better, yeah, I, I really That's think fair. I really think the dissatisfaction entirely is not even about this team, right? Anyway, I feel I feel a little bit for Miller because I think Miller was trying to say that's outside of what I'm what my focus is and this is what my job is. I just don't think it quite landed, and I and I feel for him because I really don't think he meant it the way that fans are interpreting it widely at the moment. Even though I completely understand. Why? Why that's being? Why that's the case? Yeah, and we, this text comes in from Rager, who says, "I personally can't stand Miller, but I don't think he said anything particularly wrong. It just it just comes across wrong the way he said it, uh, in contrast to what Horvat Horvat says, right? And this is a case where I, I do think also we always attack and roll our eyes uh, for hockey players giving out those cliches we're used to, but this is a situation where you're like, holy, what? That wasn't a cliche, and and some feathers get a little bit ruffled. Horvat stuck to the safe answer, right? And I'm not saying it's a cliche in the sense that he didn't believe it, but that's what you're going to get from Bo Horvat. You got something a little bit different uh, from JT Miller today when he was asked to address it. We'll talk more about the matchup with the Carolina Hurricanes. I want to get it back into the uh, the whole rebuild, retool, tank, all of that, that debate as well, because uh, there were some good texts coming in, and we heard from Jim Rutherford on that topic as well on the weekend. Keep your thoughts coming in, 650-650. We'll talk more about the game against the Hurricanes tonight, plus lots more. It's Canucks talk. <laughs> Sports no, at 650. It's, just, it's so bad around this team we haven't even gotten to Quinn Hughes being no. upgraded to week Oh, yeah, to week. no, there's like we'll major get, injury news that yeah, we haven't talked about we'll yet. We'll get into we'll that We'll talk in about three. that, too. Anyways, it's Sports at 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650 here on another, another Canucks game day. There's so many of them to go still in the year. Uh, Drancer, tonight it is against the Carolina Hurricanes. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. 650-650. 
is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative is at Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street and Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. And, you know, normally, man, we, uh, especially on a game day when there's been roster news, injury news, whatever it is, we try to get you that early in the show, get you updated so you know exactly what the situation is. Break it down in so detail. So much to talk about that we have <laughs> largely ignored any of that. But, uh, you know, it might not shock people to know there's been some more bad news for the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, Bruce Boudreau today confirming that Quinn Hughes is week to week. So obviously will not feature in the game against Carolina tonight. Uh, he also said Travis Dermott is week to week. Meanwhile, Brock Besser and Riley Stillman are day-to-day, and the team also announced Tucker Poolman has gone on IR, and replacing him on the roster, Guillaume Brisebois called up. Yes, Guillaume Brisebois called up from Abbotsford. So, Batch's best guess at defense pairings for tonight, OEL Myers, Rathbone Burrows, Guillaume Brisebois, and Luke Shen. And uh, for a blue line that has... Been under the microscope, has struggled, really struggled to create offense in particular. That's a very, very tough assignment against the Carolina Hurricanes today. The, the good news is the Carolina Hurricanes don't do a lot to attack East-West, right? The good news is is that the Carolina Hurricanes play North-South hockey. So while they are an extraordinarily good team, a true contender, right, they're not the team that I'm most nervous about this Canucks team facing when their mobility and talent level on the blue line is as fundamentally compromised as it is at the moment. I've just I just think back to the game they played in Carolina last season. The speed differential was enormous. The speed differential so is a problem. Well, and this is how the this is how the Hurricanes play. They play odd hockey, right? Like they play weird hockey and you've got to pay close attention to it tonight. Because what Rod Brindamore does is he has a faster team than you. He has better defenders than you. He, His team is super detailed in terms of um, matchups and, and just the structure with which they play. They are extraordinarily disciplined about sticking to it. And they win every battle. Mm-hmm. They will outwork you. The real danger tonight for the Canucks, with all these bad vibes around them, is if you play a couple of minutes the way you did against Buffalo in that third period against the Carolina Hurricanes, it can get really, really ugly. And not, like, it can be so ugly territorially that you don't recover from it at any point in the game. The Canucks have to be able to match some of that battle level. But, to some extent, being super limited defensively today anyway is not, in my view, as dangerous as it can be against opponents that pose more of a threat offensively. The thing that concerns me, though, is the pressure on the forecheck and the speed on the forecheck for Carolina, right? Well, and their ability to evade the forecheck with their defenders. Because watching the way they play and put pressure, it reminds me of, like, a Rick Pitino college basketball team with the full-court press, right? Where they're just like, okay, we got a bunch of really good athletes. We're going to pick you up. You're not going with the West Virginia Mountaineers for that? (laughs) <laughs> no, but, I, I but always you got a Rick Pitino. No, you gotta you gotta go Huggy Bear. For it was that. the it was the uh, the Arkansas Razorbacks back in the day as well. Anyways, <laughs> I always think of the Rick Pitino. They're gonna Pitino be good teams. this year, by Louisville. the way. Louisville, <laughs> considering a Razorbacks uh, future bet. Oh my gosh! To win the NCAA, they oh have a great God. recruiting class. We're, we're gonna talk after the <laughs> after the show transfer, but. You know, they pick you up full court. They're going to put incredible pressure on you. They might not be super offensively talented, but they're going to generate fast break points. And if you don't have a lead guard who can handle the ball and evade that pressure, you are in for a miserable night. And I just look at the Canucks without Quinn Hughes 
right? As somebody who can credibly, and you know, we haven't really seen it as much this year because uh, obviously he's been playing so many minutes, maybe dealing with a nagging injury, whatever the case is. But without a Quinn Hughes player in the lineup who can credibly move the puck against that forecheck, I mean, yeah, I get what you're saying about the lack of an East-West game, but you were putting a ton of pressure on OEL, Myers, et cetera, Rathbone, to make those quick decisions, make those effective decisions. We haven't seen that. We haven't seen that at all from this defense last year, and I think this is a really, really tough test for them to all of a sudden turn it around and do it. Well, and, you know, Oliver ekman Larson was like a really classy top four con- uh contributor for this team last season I don't think he's been particularly good to start the year to be totally honest with you Uh, there's a lot of quiet stuff in his game right now in terms of his decision making on pinches how to activate off the blue line Um, there's a lot going on that I'm nervous about in terms of the stress that some of those small decisions put on his teammates when he's on the ice with them right they're not noticeable mistakes he's not making mistakes in fact He's just not active enough to contribute to an environment where you're more likely to score the next goal than your opponent, and it's really noticeable. And with Quinn Hughes out, that's going to shine even an even bigger spotlight on him. Um, Tyler Myers has been pretty good since he came back. Like One thing about Tyler Myers is at least he's pretty active, yep. and, and the Canucks don't really have many guys capable of activating and, and supporting an attack as sort of a fourth man in. Well, just on OEL, you know, how much have we, how much talk was there in the summer about, okay, getting more offensively out of Oliver Ekman Larson, right? Even to the point of maybe you play him with Quinn Hughes, but, you know, we know there's that talent there from OEL. We just have to find a way to get it. That has been completely absent, completely mm. absent through the first six games. And that's in a situation where, as we've talked about at length, this team is desperate for more offense from the back end and he just has not been able to deliver it, right? And I think there's been so much going wrong uh, with this team that's kind of flown under the radar a little bit, but you're right to say it's just it just hasn't been there. Now all of a sudden he's being asked to be uh, playing top pair minutes, be kind of ideally you'd love him to be your key puck mover, your key transition guy. We haven't seen that this year at well, all. And let's transition here really quickly to talk about what Friedman sort of brought up. Because <laughs> I think this is a natural jumping off point for us. Because we're about to talk about how do you replace Quinn Hughes on this defense. And of course you can't. You don't. Right? You cannot do it. And it, But but it's not just because of how good Quinn Hughes is. It's because of how porous this team's defense is. Now, Friedman was talking about why this team doesn't fit together. Why, why they can never live up to the apparent sum of their costs. And I've talked a lot about like Horvat Miller... Patterson all being offensively oriented lefties, for example, and, and as a result, they're more than some of their parts. I've also been talking for years, yelling from the rooftops about this team's inability to transition from the back end out, their inability to play that game, how how significantly it is at odds with the way the contemporary NHL game is played. The amount of times on this airwaves that I've said things like, you just can't win with this defense. You just can't win with this defense. And everyone's like, try- we're like, we're all trying to find the guy that did this. <laughs> there is, you know, is it cliques? Do they get along? Is it compete? Was it Travis? Is it Bruce? Is it structure? Right? Is it Demko? Demko really hasn't been himself. Guys, the issue's the same. The issue's the same. There are other issues. I'm not trying to say there are no other issues. But there is one fundamental issue. We've known about it all along. We still know about it. Like, stop. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that issue is magnified now that Quinn Hughes is out week to week, right? Um, 
you know, <laughs> without Quinn Hughes, this team has very little push from the back end out. And I'm curious to see how much the Canucks modify what they're trying to do, how much they just play punt and hunt, how much more of this is on the forwards, how much that might stress out for even further guys like JT Miller and uh, a, a variety of other players who've come under fire yeah. for their performance to this point, Tanner Pearson, et cetera, right? It's going to be a tough slog, particularly against a Hurricanes team that just flat out wins the neutral zone with relentless, ruthless efficiency. I thought on Saturday, Elias Patterson was really noticeable, not just for what he was doing in the offensive zone, but for doing a lot of the heavy lifting, transitioning the puck with Quinn Hughes out, right? But he's he was the only forward who was really noticeable in that regard, right? And I'm not saying he's the only forward on this team who can do it. Bo Horvat can be a good transitional player. You know, Ilya Mikheyev has that speed. There are guys who can do it, but again, it's pretty much been Elias Pettersson alone in that regard, and he's a great player. He he can he can still tilt the ice on his minutes, even with the defense how it's set up for the Canucks, not not giving him a ton of support. But if that's your only option, right? And, and as Boudreaux said, if you know after Elias Pettersson, your next best player is Neil Zaman, that's a really tough spot to win a game. You know, let alone go on the kind of run that they need to go on. Uh, to vault themselves back to 500 or vault themselves back to be to looking like a legitimate playoff team. That is just putting a ton of pressure uh, on Elias Pettersson. I don't see a ton of other candidates who can realistically kind of step up and help carry the load in that way with Quinn Hughes out. And By the way, one thing to note and watch for if you are looking to wager on this game, because I've been talking about how the Canucks, I like the Canucks to win the game, <laughs> um, but but the value is not there because they're not being priced as a as a true as long a massive shot. underdog, and yeah. and I think they probably should be priced as a true uh, underdog. It's just or like a, a significant underdog. It's just that I'm uh, struggling to, you know, make sense of the fact that hockey is weird, right? Like that's the only reason that I'm I'm picking the Canucks. But one thing to watch for is, uh, and and it's not listed currently by our friends at Play Now. I actually can't find it. Uh, generally by Vegas, but one thing to watch for is when Quinn Hughes went out last year, Oliver ekman Larson mm-hmm. had eight points in seven games. So once you start to be able to buy Oliver ekman Larson first goal, if you want us to do a sprinkle on that, anytime goal scorer, I think it's nine to one. Uh, but once his once his power play points and points are priced out at point five, you gotta you gotta take that until uh, until the bookies start <laughs> start pricing in the fact that he's really productive with Hughes out. So that's an angle to watch for if you're uh, if you're a Canucks fan looking for something within the game to cheer for tonight. Yeah, I mean, you got to hope that he finds that level of production again because it sure hasn't well, been he will. If he gets the power play time, he will. Once the power play gets cooking, it's just obviously not been there to this point. <laughs> the defense thing. we we got to keep dwelling on it. Like, I'm sorry. I, it's a monumental task. Well, a monumental task to try to to try to make it functional, above average, whatever whatever descriptor you want to use to to have a, as a bar for where they should get to. Going from there or going to there from where they are now is a monumental undertaking. Well, and I mean Jack Rathbone's gotten into one game, mm-hmm. right? So if he's the answer or part of it, the organization doesn't appear to be convinced, right? They watched him play six or seven preseason games and then paid a second round pick. To, to go from Dickinson to Riley Stillman. Jason Dickinson, of course, would be the second leading scorer on this team, by the way. Just need to bring that up. Stillman's out for a bit, and I, look, I thought he played pretty pretty well. Like, he was fine. But, I mean, I don't think that's the answer. They're missing Travis Dermott. 
more than any team should miss Travis Dermott, but Travis Dermott's not moving the needle for this club over the long term. We know that. We know that. Right? Here's where things get sticky. Like, there's a there's a really good young defenseman on a perfectly reasonable contract who's been on the trade market for a year in Jacob Chikorin, right? Try to imagine a Jacob Chikorin trade that makes sense for the Canucks, and it's you can't do it. Like, like a, a somewhat realistic one. Like, Brock Besser and a pick for Jacob Chikorin makes no sense. First of all, because the Coyotes aren't going to want to do it. Well, that's the thing. That's, it- Secondly, because... They're, they've, they've been after multiple yeah. high-quality draft picks in exchange for a, a good young defenseman who's got a killer shot and, you know, is is on a ticket that costs only like $4.5 million, right? Like, they, they want a bounty for him. But even if you get him, can you invest $20 million on your left side? Can you invest $20 million on your left side? Like, can you go and even get, like, a big-money defenseman when you've already got Myers, OEL, and Hughes combined for more than $20 million on your back end. Like, I don't know, and this goes back to the Bedard thing too, I don't know how you can rebuild this blue line without drafting like 10 of them and signing five more European slash college free agents like like my guy Nick Blankenberg, um, you know, over the next three years and hoping you get two good players. Well, that's the like, thing. I you, don't know how you do it. You need another top pair defenseman, right, along with Quinn Hughes. Oh, yeah. You need at least one more Top four defensemen. Like no, 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 three no, no, defensemen. no, 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 sorry, stop it. The Colorado Avalanche don't have two top pair defensemen yeah. and two top four and two top four defensemen. They have four top pair defensemen, right? Like the 2011 Canucks didn't have two top pair defensemen and then two top. They actually had four top four defensemen. Like you need four top four defensemen. Yeah. So you're looking at three guys. At least three. You you're need at least three. Three guys past Quinn Hughes. And you don't have the cap space to go out and sign them, and they're incredibly expensive, and by the time they hit free agency, that's really only a... The wheels are falling well, off but, most of them anyway. Well, but that's the thing. It's They're so old <laughs> that you can only really justify that move if you're right on the cusp. You're not going to find For sure. your long-term answer on the blue line in free agency because they're already 29. They're already 30 No, by the time they get there. So you can't do it in free agency. You hope you can You hope you hope can find like a couple guys to supplement in free agency. Like Sometimes you can get you know a TJ Brody in free agency, a Chris Tanev in free agency, a, a, an Ilya Labushkin in free agency, right? And you add those in in the right at the right moment yeah and that's and maybe can, that's like your fourth guy but but like look at buffalo like jacob bryson have you even heard the name jacob bryson before he looked like he would be vancouver's best defenseman in the lineup on saturday night like he would have been jalen chatfield tonight who's played really yeah. well for the hurricanes and was sort of just a canucks guy two years ago is probably going to be the best right-handed defenseman or would be better than any will play better tonight than any right-handed defenseman the canucks have and the other thing is... That's how dire the situation is. You don't have the cap space to address it. You... Don't have the asset cap. You don't have the asset to go it. do a trade. No. Nope. And you haven't spent a first or second round pick on a defenseman since you took Quinn Hughes and Jet Wu in 2018. That's a long time ago now. There's been a bunch of drafts since then. And look, I get it. Best most player of available. T- most of the time they didn't have those yep. picks. That's fair. But still. It's with not the, fair. It's not fair. The premium picks they have had have all been wingers. Most play, best player available, sure. But at a certain point, when you're not using your good draft picks to choose guys at premium positions, you're going to have a deficit of them in your system. And now they don't have any credible defense prospects because you haven't picked any. They haven't picked any for a really long time, and that's what happens. So that's the kind of thing that, you know, when we start talking about a rebuild, right, and the potential 
for a rebuild. You, what, you whether you're rebuilding or not, you're going to spend years trying to fit, sort out this blue line, and it's not a year or two. It's not a year or two, right? Like again, you could get Bedard, you could get Bedard, and you're still going to be absolutely spinning your wheels for f- three, four years, like through certainly through his most valuable seasons, just trying to fix this blue line to to, to make it even serviceable. Uh, Mar- er- earlier in the show, when we were talking about the idea of the rebuild, Marcus from the Ridge says, when you have players like PD and Hughes, you don't rebuild. Uh, you look to complement them. Otherwise, these guys will want to get out of Dodge. And then another person texted in KC said, uh, okay, tank. And then how do you think PD, Quinn, and Demko are going to react to that? Not too many in their p- players in their prime want to suck for three or four years. Uh, that ship has sailed. Benning should have been the one uh, to how tank. How do you think how they're you- reacting right now? That's the thing. How do you think they're reacting right now? By the way, this the choice is... is not tank or contend for a Stanley Cup, right? Like that <laughs> that one's out of the window. The the contend for the Stanley Cup one is not happening in the next couple of years. I had a call from an old Florida colleague the other day who just wanted to check up partly cuz I think they were watching the news in Vancouver and wanted to get a sense of everything that was happening, Just wanted right? to check in on you. <laughs> just want to make sure you're doing okay. Just a wellness check? No, it wasn't a wellness check. It was more like, "Wow." What a mess. And and they had a comment to me where they started down the road of saying, you saw it in Florida when we had good players and couldn't get out of our own way. And I said to them, it's nothing like that. And they replied, what? What do you mean? Like, there's so many good players. There's so many top players in Vancouver. It's it's not that different than having Barkov, Huberto, Ekblad, Trocek, and, you know, continuing to miss the playoffs. And I told him it is. And here's why. When the Panthers made the playoffs in 2016, Barkov got signed. Mm. Huberto got signed. Massive deals. Like seven, eight years, right? Like the Huberto is playing out the last year of that deal now. Ekblad, eight years. Trocek, five years. That deal just expired. So they made the playoffs once. Everyone was like, we're a team on the rise. We're a young team on the rise. Sign them all. And then they screwed up the first half of that before they fired the general manager and and the next guy figured it out this team doesn't have that cost certainty with Pedersen they now have it with Demko and they have it with Hughes which is great but they don't have that cost certainty with Pedersen that is going to be the fly in the ointment whether this team continues to try and be good now or not this team can continue to try and be good now they might even be a 90 point team they might even be a playoff team with if everything bounces their way they might even be a playoff team who cares, right? Like, there's a chance, but there's a much greater chance that the reality of this team's blue line and talent level will continuously result in stretches like this that sabotage every season this team plays, right? If you need absolutely everything to go your way to make it the playoffs, you're not a playoff team. Because you know what? Very rarely does everything go a hockey team's way over 82 games. You need to have the talent level to make it when things go wrong right? They're just not there. So whether you're looking to the future or looking to the present, it doesn't matter. The result's going to be the same. This team's not going to be good enough. Just not going to be good enough. The question is, do you admit that to yourself or not? That's what I sort of think Rutherford, who's gotten a lot of criticism for what he said on After Hours about how long a rebuild Mm -hmm. takes. You know, the commentary was, we may be trending in that direction anyway, but like, and then, I don't want to, but it might happen. But but you know, my my preference is still to transition on the fly, right? That was the what I think he was getting at was we might not have a choice. We might just not be good enough to transition on the fly. And you know what? 
welcome to the party. Yeah, he's right. This team isn't good enough to warrant doubling down on further. They weren't this summer, and no matter what happens going forward, they can get back on track. You win the next 9 of 10. Get back to 500. Because that's about what it's going to take. And here's the thing. doesn't matter. The the logic of... Need to look forward. We have Pedersen. We have Hughes. We have Demko. We don't want to punt on seasons with those players because they're so good. We're going to try to turn this around quickly. I understand that logic, but that's already been tried, right? Like, you've taken your shot at that, and it hasn't worked out. You can't continue to take your shot at that because then you are, in fact, punting on prime years for those players, right? I get doing that in the first instance, even if I didn't you no, don't necessarily it, it, agree with it. It's already happened. That's the thing. Yeah. You've already done it. You've, you've tried that strategy to keep the players happy. If you keep doing that, you're just banging your head against a wall. We've seen it. I, you, you can't use the logic of, oh, well, you don't want to tick off your star young players. Do you think they're having fun? You think they're having fun in this environment? That this is creating an environment where they want to stick around? Where at least Pedersen wants to line a, sign a long-term contract? It's not. You've already baked in that downside, that risk of ticking off a player like Elias Pedersen. The question now is, okay, with that factored in, where do you go from here? And as you said, at a certain point, you just kind of got to be honest with where you are. Well, I the saw... sooner you rip the Band-Aid off, the sooner you can actually move in a productive direction. This is, this is I'm going to say this is the most negative thing I can say on the air, but I'm going to do it. Serious question, texts in Ian in Coquitlam. How long until Elias Pettersson pulls a Matthew Kachuk and wants to go somewhere else? I don't have any insight into this. Any insight. I want to be very clear before I say mm-hmm. what I'm about to say, which is that I have no clue. No clue. But with a little creativity... You could pull a Kachuk a year before Kachuk did it, right? Like, Kachuk did it after the expiry of his deal. He was one year away from unrestricted free agency. He let the Flames know he wasn't going to talk extension with them. He wanted to be traded, gave them a short list of teams that he was willing to talk extension to, called his own shot, right? Called his own shot, handled the whole process. It was a revolution from, from a player empowerment perspective, unlike anything we've ever seen in the NHL. Well, if you're creative enough, you could actually do it a year before. All it takes is you to inform the team and leak that you will not yeah. sign an extension with them and that you've demanded trade. It still has to be handled with a fair bit of, like, um, you still have to be careful about it because the team can just be like, whatever. Yeah. You don't have any rights. But like, we, it's fine. We, but see, we see that in the NBA every summer, Drance. Every summer. Literally every summer. Literally every summer. We never see it in hockey. Yeah. But, I mean, you can begin to do it the moment you become eligible for an extension. No thanks. And you leak it. And it's done. And it's done. It becomes extremely hard for the team to call your bluff and, and bring you back for another year. So I don't have any insight into this, but I, but in terms of a timeline, like that's what it could look like in the event that a player was motivated. And I'm not talking about Pedersen specifically. I'm talking about any player in, in their contractual situation. You could do it as soon as one year out from your restricted free agent contract, your second contract signing, which would then leave you still another year away from unrestricted free agency. That's how much the line is blurred between UFA and RFA. And here's the thing. Again, speaking in generalities, right, not about the specific situation because we're not, as you said, no insight into what Elias Pettersson is thinking, anything like that, what the team is thinking, anything like that. But in this day and age, if you have a player in any sport on your team, a young player that you think can be a franchise-type player, and they're eligible to sign an extension after this season, which Elias Pettersson is, he's eligible to sign an extension after this season, you have to be thinking about what are we doing to convince him to stay, right? That has to be front of mind. 
now. It's not, a, it's not a future problem. That is something that has to be at the very forefront of your mind right now. What is our relationship with this player? How are we improving it? Again, I'm not even talking specifically with Elias Patterson. That's just the reality of running a sports team today. So, yeah, that has to be a question that you're asking yourself right now. F- fans are also upset for, with us for broaching this topic, but to be honest with you, we're kind of reading the inbox, right? Like the, yeah. the one of the most popular responses to our advocating for this club to be disciplined in in looking to the future, whether you want to call that a rebuild or retool, whatever, I don't care. It's it's just about being disciplined and and prioritizing two, four, five years ahead when this team might actually have a shot at contending. The most frequent commentary on it was, what about Pedersen, Hughes, and Demko? Mm-hmm. So this is where the conversation's been led by our audience. Just and again, note that. I think there is... I don't think this used to be the case that rebuilding... People equated rebuilding with being bad for five years. Yeah, That's no. tanking. And even that doesn't have to be five years. It, no. But like rebuilding and tanking have become conflated in a really weird way. You know what I mean? Like, I agree. I think if you... Have let's say take I just away don't everything even think else. it's rebuilt. Like, anyway. if you have Pedersen, Demko, and Hughes, and you make a concerted effort to like put some low cost guys around them, I agree. You probably shouldn't be in the running for first overall in the lottery year after year. I I agree with that. That doesn't mean you can't rebuild. Just because you're not going to be consistently the worst team in the league or a bottom two team in the league doesn't mean you can't rebuild and do smart things to prioritize the future. And I think there's a kind of a semantic difference here where people hear rebuild and they think, oh, well, you're going to try to get the first overall pick every year. No, that's a different thing. You can rebuild without doing that. That's the process. I mean, you think about um, when New York sent the rebuilding letter, right? Mm -hmm. Chris Kreider, Mika Zibanejad, um, and uh, (laughs) um, were on the team. Yeah. Like, they were on the team. They're still on the team. They're still there. Yeah. When the Los Angeles Kings spent a few years rebuilding, Kopitar and Doughty and Quick and Dustin Brown, who just retired, were on the team. By the time they made the playoffs again, post-rebuild, those guys were still on the team. You know, like, people also think, oh, trade all your best players. It's not even what we're talking about. No. I'm not sitting here saying trade Pedersen, Hughes, and Demko. Not at all. Prioritize making moves for the benefit of the future, not just raging against the dying of the light the way that this team has for a for a month. Yeah. And I don't or think for it, a month for 10 years. I don't think it me. used to be that way, right? Like I think when you know, I don't know, 20 years ago you heard rebuild, you kind of wonder, okay, yeah, like you know, trade away some veterans, get some picks, try to be good a couple years. Like that was a pretty commonly understood yeah. definition of rebuild. It does not have to be I blame Sam Hinkie and Tim Murray. I think they yeah. changed the way we talked about yeah, it. Now now it now it becomes tank. Try to be as bad yeah. as possible. That's a different thing. I don't think I'm not I'm not uh, recommending that. I don't think other people are recommending that. We're talking about a different Isn't thing. it just refurbishing? <laughs> I like that. I've never heard that one. That's a good one. We have the foundation and everything built. Yeah, you just need to do a little remodeling. I think uh, they need more you than might need that. To, you might need to do like a, you know, where you keep the outside because it's a heritage building, but you got the inside. Have, having a puck-moving defense core, having a defense that can transition the puck is not just like refurbishing. That is the foundation of a, of a contemporary NHL team. Like, while that... While that is crumbling, this isn't just a refurbishment, in my view. Uh, well, we added another word to the uh, the lexicon of what, whatever teams do when they try to get good again in the future. Uh, 650-650, Dunbar Lumber Text Line. Keep your thoughts coming in. Final segment of the show coming up. Uh, we'll hear from head coach Bruce Boudreau on a Canucks game day. Get your thoughts in as well. It is Canucks Talk, Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Welcome back. Final segment of the day here on Canucks Talk. Jamie Dunn, Thomas Drance, 
uh, coming to you at Rogers Arena, but also always in spirit from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. Lots more to chat about today, but uh, it is a Canucks game day. It's game day. It's Diwali night. Wasn't the best atmosphere here on Saturday night, but uh, hey, today is a new day. We'll see what the game brings, and we are giving away. The game script dictated it. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Uh, we're giving away a couple of tickets to tonight's game. So I'll throw out a trivia question here, uh, a pretty easy trivia question. Text in 650-650. You don't have to be first, uh, but you do have to get it right and just sign your name, uh, and our producer, Lena, will uh, get at you in the text inbox, and we will announce the winner before the end of the show. So to win a pair of tickets to tonight's game against the Har- Carolina Hurricanes, simple trivia question, who is the leading goal scorer for those Carolina Hurricanes through their first five games of the season. Again, who right now is leading the Carolina Hurricanes in goal scoring? Not total points, goal scoring. Hit us up, 650-650. And again, our producer will choose a winner and we'll let you know who it is before the end of the show. Now, I did want to get to this question, uh, Drancer. I don't think that we have answered this question or really talked about this issue, but it has something, it is something that has come up a lot uh, and has started to come up uh, more and more. And Elliot, <laughs> Elliot and Ladner uh, texts in after half a month into the first year of JT's new contract. Let me ask you guys, is it already untradeable? That is Elliot. Oh and Ladner. man. No, no. Here's so I coined a word. I, co- I coined a phrase, and I used it constantly when people were calling Roberto Luongo untradeable. Because mm-hmm. I covered L- Roberto Luongo. I, r- I probably wrote 35 Roberto Luongo trade speculation articles in the first three years of my professional career. Like, it was an embarrassing amount of copy. Just constant. Constant speculation. Because it l- went on for two years. It was like 30 months of L- Roberto Luongo trade speculation. And... I coined a phrase for anyone to rebut anyone who called his contract immovable, and I called it the Scott Gomez corollary. And the Scott Gomez corollary states quite simply that there is no such thing as an untradeable contract. And I think history has borne that out. David Clarkson was traded. Twice. Nathan Horton's uninsured contract was traded. I mean, there is no contract in the league truly untradeable. Man, I almost said Oliver Ekman Larson's contract was traded. But it's, it's true. true. But it's true. So, yeah. Every contract can be moved. Every contract. But you look at the cost of moving some of these deals when they become unpalatable. And, yeah, it's difficult to do, right? The moment any player signs a fair value contract and, and make no mistake, like for what JT Miller had done coming off of the contract that he had leaving a year of term on the table, right? That was a fair contract. He wasn't paid like he was a 99.1 a centerman, right? He was paid like a one, a forward for a team, right? Like a star forward. There's like 30 forwards in the NHL with cap hits that size, right? It's not like they paid him to like, he was a top 10 scorer the way he'd performed last season, Right. It was a fair value contract, but the moment anyone signs that deal, the certainty of being locked to a ticket means that acquiring them also comes with a commit committed course of action. There's opportunity cost that's priced in, and in the flat cap era, that opportunity cost is priced in at a very high clip by teams that understand 
uh, you know, what, what, what every deal you commit to takes off the table in terms of your uh, ability to improve rapidly, do other things. So, yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be easy to do, but that's true for anybody after they sign a contract, right? The, the story on JT Miller has absolutely flipped over six weeks. No one, I don't think, is looking at his six games so far this season, though, and having their mind fundamentally changed about who he is. And if, and if you're a fan who's feeling that way, you know, I think you got to understand, like, JT Miller is a very good player. You know, I don't think the industry's mind should change over six games. I don't think fans' minds should significantly change over six games. Uh, I don't think fans' minds should significantly change over 60 games, right? Which is partly why I was so obstinate in, in talking about why I preferred him on the wing, even as he was a 99-point first-line center last year. And, you know, I got crushed for that a little bit. Um, we'll see how he fares on the wing tonight. Like, we'll see if that's a situation that sticks or if Miller bounces back. It's uh, going to be fascinating to watch. They definitely have a good player here, though, right? Like, Jeff Skinner in Buffalo. We saw him come in and play mm-hmm. great on that first line. Like, that was a bad contract. Oh, when, yeah. It was a bad contract when Buffalo signed it. It didn't work. Guess what? Jeff Skinner still a He's really good player. He's contributing to their team. We watched Jakub Voracek be one of the only Columbus Blue Jackets forwards who was reliably moving the puck the other night when Vancouver lost in Columbus. Jakub Voracek at $8.25 million? He's a really good player. Is he worth $8.25 million? No. But he's still a 60-point guy who's one of the best playmaking wingers in hockey. Like, you know, JT Miller's still a really good player. Uh, I don't even think the jury should be out. Well, I never would have thought that he was going to be worth it over a long-term deal anyway, right? Like, my opinion on that's not changed over over the course of six games. JT Miller's a good player. He's going to help key this power play. This power play's still going to be good over 82 unless they make significant changes to the roster. And we're probably going to see him have weeks and months where he is carrying this team for stretches. Like, especially if he plays the wing and the two-way impact returns to, to the level that it was or has historically been when he's on the wing, you know, the JT Miller conversation is going to change massively because he's really, really good. Yeah, it's look, it's not a problem to trade the contract because people look <laughs> am around I gonna the league. Do, am I going to do the JT Miller thing that we did with Pedersen? Are we? Is that what? We're uh, into? It's a different conversation, but is it? I don't. Uh, yes, I think it is because I don't know. Well, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how the season goes. Is, how much is we get Elias Pedersen even tradable now? <laughs> feels pretty. Feels pretty. Uh, could you even get good value? For but him? I think the feels, key, feels pretty familiar to me. The from this, key uh, point is from this seat. It's the it's not his performance. It's the contract. It's not his performance through six games, which changes the calculation. No, of but training. That, that it's his contract. The, but that was the that, same with Pedersen last year. He just signed the second the, the bridge oh, deal. Oh yeah, but I mean that deal is you it's can always three it's three years. It's for a player who's sure. way younger. Doesn't have the long tail, right? Like yeah, that that's a much less real conversation to me. Fair Whereas enough. the JT Miller is. Yeah, it's impacting his value in a way that Pedersen's deal was never going to impact his value if you had wanted uh, to explore something like that. Um, Before we hear from Bruce Boudreau, I did want to read this text. Uh, It starts with, uh, come on, guys, you're better than this, which, you know, that's debatable. But he says, uh, same old dumping on them for not fixing the blue line. I I followed closely in the offseason. Prices were ridiculous. Even you two realize that the inherited contracts are the real issue. This management doesn't get a pass so far, but you have to tell the whole story. Well, here's the thing, and I, I I think we said this on the show last week, or I said this on the show last week, I had no problem whatsoever with deciding to be patient, with not paying exorbitant prices to open up cap space or fix the defense for this year. It just becomes harder to square that with trading a second-round pick to get away from Jason Dickinson's deal, 
and signing JT Miller to a long-term extension, right? In that case, you I don't, after you do those two things, I don't think you can just say, oh, well, it's the contracts we inherited. Oh, so you, you've, you've taken an affirmative action to buy in to the roster at that point. That's the issue for me. Sorry, sorry. Who's saying they should have fixed the blue line in one offseason? Yeah. I'm saying it's going to take years. But when you commit the amount of cap space they did in the way they did it, you diminish your ability to actually do it with any with any type of pace, right? I mean, it's one thing to say you'd lost a trade. Say you'd been willing to lose a trade to move some forward money out, right? Like a like a Bjorkstrand style, really crummy return back for a really good player type deal for mm-hmm. one of, and I'm going to list good players here, Miller. Obviously, you would have gotten more for Miller than the Blue Jackets got for Bjorkstrand, but maybe not a ton more, right? Like, the disappointing Miller return, the disappointing Besser return, the disappointing Garland return, or, um, you know, whatever. Or or you even pay the second to get off Dickinson earlier in the offseason, right? Say you'd done something like that, right? Reallocated some of that money. Then instead of signing Mikheyev, you know, your options are bad. But all of a sudden, you've created all this cap space. You get into free agency. Like, what if you're the Ducks? What if you're the Ducks and you do John Klingberg? Like, what if you had Klingberg one times seven and you had signed Labushkin? Instead of adding Mikheyev and, um, you know, keeping all your forwards. Like, if you'd been willing to lose a trade to carve out cap space, you easily could have taken, you know, if you take Garland's money and, and Mikheyev's money out, Canucks aren't as good up front, but you actually have a chance or at least a straightforward path to having rebuilt the right side of your blue line. Not not long term. The Klingberg deal is only one year long. Mm-hmm. But, like, what's the problem with that? You've got an asset now. Well, and if it's if the idea was if the idea like that's a quintessential, we're uh, focused on the future, but we also want to be competitive right now. Move for sure. I have no problem with trying to be competitive while looking to the future. By the way, right? Like, I don't think you have to ever wave the white flag entirely on a season. I think you sh- you should be self confident enough in your ability, especially around a young core, to find a bunch of one million dollar guys who can play. You know, I mean, look at Nils Amon. You know, Neil Zaman's good. Like, Neil Zaman's helpful. He can help you win. Maybe in a fourth-line role, but he can help you win. Um, You know, look at Kuzmenko. Like, some of this team's best moves cost them nothing. The ones that are not looking good so far are the expensive ones. Well, you know, there's a lot of ways that you can stay flexible, right? There's a lot of ways that you can improve your blue line, particularly if you have cap space. Think about this Carolina Hurricanes team in the context of the JT Miller conversation. Just in the last three years, they lose the Jeff Skinner trade because they don't want to pay him. Vincent Trocek walks. Pretty good player. Mm-hmm. Dougie Hamilton walks. Pretty good player. Dougie and- Hamilton, a player they gave up. Like, they traded for... They gave Elias up good, Yeah, they gave up a really good player for Dougie Hamilton. <laughs> yeah. And then he walks. And Noah Hannafin. And Noah Hannafin. Yeah. Both key players for the Flames now, yeah. D- Anthony D'Angelo walked... This offseason, um, you know, they just, they're just willing to lose guys. They're just willing to lose guys. And I don't know if you saw the Don Waddell quote, but they're just not going to pay guys in their late 20s. They're just not. They're just not going to do it. Um, maybe that gets tested a little bit with a real legacy piece like a Jordan Stahl. But for the most part, this Carolina Hurricanes team is comfortable trying to replace those guys. How do they do it? Well, hey, we'll get paid to take Max Pacioretty. Now Max Pacioretty's been hurt, but still, it's a decent bet. We'll get we'll we'll give up a our third best goalie prospect for Brent Burns. Sure, free free. They're able to get free stuff because they manage the cap right. 
Uh, Stewie texts in, are you guys saying he would have let JT walk or take a significant loss in a trade? A hundred percent. How many times did I say you have to be willing to lose a trade to reset the decks? Like, you can win a trade you lose, you can lose a trade you win. The Carolina Hurricanes are one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference. Do you know what they got for Jeff Skinner? When they traded Jeff Skinner, they got like a second round pick and like Cliff Pooh. Literally. Like, they got nothing. They got zero of tangible value for Jeff Skinner. Who would you rather be for the last four years? The Buffalo Sabres, who won that trade mm -hmm. and then signed Jeff Skinner? Or the Carolina Hurricanes, who lost that trade soundly? Here's another example. The Carolina Hurricanes absolutely hit a home run out of the ballpark trade for Vincent Trocek. The Florida Panthers lost that trade roundly. They got E2 Lusterainen, Chase Prisky, Eric Halla, like legitimately a poo-poo platter. Like it's like one of the worst trades you, you'll see in terms of deadline selling. But the Florida Panthers got better having lost that deal. The Carolina Hurricanes also benefited, but it's not like either team went to the conference final. You know, like it's not like either team won a cup. And the Florida Panthers, having missed the playoffs three straight years prior to making that deal, used the cap space incredibly efficiently, upgraded the depth of their roster, changed general managers, boom! The next year, they were a 100-plus point team. The year after that, they won the President's Trophy. I mean, you have to be willing. You have to understand the big picture, right? And the big picture is, is that you can lose a trade. You can lose a press conference. You can lose a news cycle. What you cannot do, the worst-case scenario, the worst thing to do is lose a long-term contract in the hard-cap era. Fully guaranteed contracts. You have to be so careful about these. And this team has not been nearly careful enough in the money that they've committed to older players who, whether they're supporting players or not, already are going to be for the meat of those commitments. Because that's how hockey works. It's a young man's game. Come on. And the thing is, to Stewie's question about, you know, would you let him walk? Would you take a significant loss in a trade? Look, it's not fun to trade a guy who was scoring 99 points for you for what seems like a middling return, right? That's, that's not a fun experience. That's a hard thing to do. But you have to be willing to look at what the actual alternatives are, right? And you can't, just because you don't like the idea of doing that, you can't let yourself get walked into a brutal long-term mistake, right? You have to be realistic about what the actual options on the table are. The options on the table might have been, we don't know what the actual, you know, uh, oh, if there was ever, how far Chalks ever got along with other teams, what was offered, anything like that. But if the options on the table were not a great return or a deal that has huge amounts of risk, that's what you're choosing between, right? And you you got to be honest with yourself about that. Let me give you another example. Say Dylan Gunther never becomes anything at all. The Arizona Coyotes having gotten literally nothing for Oliver Ekman Larson and Connor, uh, Connor Garland aside from cap flexibility will almost certainly have won that deal, right? Like, there is no free lunch. Cap space is an asset. It's the most important one. This organization's failed to understand that for 10 years. They changed management. They failed to understand it again this summer. It's going to hold back their ability materially to improve this team. And in fact, the books are now so polluted that even if a dream scenario unfolded from a negative side, right? Even if this team were to lose out and win the lottery for the first time in the 52-year history of this franchise, they'd still be cooked. Like, they'd still be positioned poorly to capitalize off of a potential generational sniper who also happens to be a Vancouver Canucks superfan. Like, that's that's how bad it is. That's how down bad they are. And again, I'm saying this as the guy who says, 
I think this team's going to turn around. I think they're going to have multiple good months. I think people are going to be like, oh, you said they were so bad back in October. Like, I'm going to hear that for large stretches of the year. I'm convinced that what we've seen from this team is middling five on five, a power play that's been shooting at 5%. Like, they're so brutally unlucky and likely to turn it around. Way too much talent five on four to not be lethal. That's going to start winning them games. Demko's going to start winning them games because he's Thatcher Demko. And he's not going to stop... Uh, he's not going to keep saving, like, half of the shots he faces four on five. Like, all of that's going to come back to earth. The Canucks are still going to be limited from the back end out. But they're going to win games. They're going to win weeks. They're going to win entire months. We are going to have the red-hot Canucks are charging toward a playoff um, spot story. I'm pretty sure. In January or February, unless this team makes the trades that neuter that possibility in advance. I can believe all of that. And still think there's no action so dramatic <laughs> that they should be opposed to it a priori in in tilting toward whether it's a whether you want to call it a rebuild, a refurbishment, a retool, whatever word whatever, you want to use. Yeah, moving toward um, making moves with intense discipline to carve out cap space, add asset capital, meaningful asset capital, ideally the cash on hand draft picks that I've been talking about for 12 months and begin to uh, f- fundamentally reimagine what this team is. Uh, we promised we would give away a pair of tickets to the Canucks game tonight against the Carolina Hurricanes. Producer Lena is standing by. Lena, who is the lucky winner for the tickets tonight? All right, fellas. My only requirement in picking the winner was getting the spelling right. There so you the go. the leading goal scorer <laughs> for the Canes is Andrei Svechnikov. And this contestant will be able to see his fantasy stud live. I'm talking <laughs> about you, Goldie. Send us your name and email and we'll send you the tickets. And also, there were so many people texting in. And let me just say, there's going to be many chances for you to win tickets this season on Canucks Stock. There you go. And that was Goldie, you said? Yeah. Goldie. All right. So congratulations to Goldie. Thank you, producer Lena. Yes, your fantasy hockey stud, Andrei Svechnikov. Uh, you will get a chance to see him and show your appreciation for what he's doing for your fantasy hockey team live. Uh, enjoy the game, Goldie. Enjoy the game, everyone else. We'll see. I Look, in all honesty, I just hope it is not a toxic atmosphere like what we saw. Oh, I don't think Saturday. it's going to be. I don't think, I think the Canucks be. are pulling the miracle victory. The moment, the moment Freddie Anderson in his 939 save percentage against the Canucks, career save percentage 939, the moment I saw that, I was like, oh, the odds are stacked up too much in in Carolina's favor for them to possibly come away from tonight with two points. Uh, we not how hockey works. We will be back to talk about it, two points or not, for the Canucks tomorrow. Next up, it is the Hockey PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Uh, enjoy the game tonight. Have a great rest of your day. We'll talk to you tomorrow. It's the Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650.